Thank you to Mike and Marcia for doing the music for us today. Congratulations to Illinois for a first win of the season. We'll be in James chapter 4, taking a break from John. Uh, Lord willing, the plan is to finish up John chapter 15 over the next couple of weeks. And then I'm going to take a break from John for a few weeks and look at some passages in Exodus, uh, which I think will be... Um, I think it'll be really good. But James chapter 4 is what we'll be this morning. And verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again come to you today in a spirit of worship that you are the almighty and everlasting God. And may we never forget that. May we trust in the gift of eternal life that you promised through your son, Jesus Christ, and believe and trust in and have faith in him, Lord, that he is the savior of the world who died so that all who believe in him can have eternal life. Lord, we want to pray for these servicemen and women who lost their lives in Afghanistan tragically this week, Lord. We pray for their families in an incredible time of loss and sorrow. Lord, we continue to pray for that situation. There's so much darkness in that part of the world. Lord, we pray for Christians and for churches in Afghanistan and those who are known whose lives can be in danger. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for your protection. We pray for your peace in the face of upheaval. And we continue to pray for the vulnerable in that country, the women and children in that nation. Lord, we pray for our own nation, for the hurricane this, that's supposed to make landfall on the Gulf Coast this week. We pray for people in places like New Orleans and, and Alabama. Lord, we I want to pray for safety and for protection. Lord, we, um, we pray for mitigation of the ramifications of this storm. Lord, we want to praise you that we've seen this weekend good reports of improving health for Beth Ravens, who many of us have been praying for. And Lord, we thank you for that and just continue to pray for her. Lord, once again, we pray for our time in your word today, that we would be pointed to you and to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.
On September 19, 1990, a 24-year-old man walked into a bank in Ottawa, which is in Ontario, Canada, pulled out a pistol and robbed the bank, leaving with roughly $6,000. For several days before, the robber, a man named Danny Simpson, had come into the bank to case the place. As a result, he was pretty easy for the police to find. He was arrested and sentenced to eight years in prison. But in a twist of irony, Simpson had something that was of far more value than $6,000 when he walked into the bank. The pistol that Simpson had used for the robbery was an extremely rare Colt 45 made by the Ross Gun Company in 1918, one of only 100 such pistols that were made, valued at upwards of $100,000. Sometimes we want something that's of less value than what we already have. We often ignore the tremendous value that we have in the gospel and search instead for smaller things, for achievements and power trips. But we have a perfect and holy God who loves us. We have a Savior who died for us and who teaches us about life and how to live. In spite of that wisdom, we often trade that and trade the things of God for the things of the world. And that's the issue that James is confronting in chapter 4 of his letter. The opening section of this passage is really a microcosm of the sinfulness of humanity. And this passage this week basically breaks down into two halves. The problem and the solution. And the main idea that holds it all together is that the godly should not be worldly. And with that, we'll jump right into our passage. And again, James sets the scene with the problematic circumstances. Looking at verse 1. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Again, right out of the gate, James is addressing issues among the audience to whom he's addressing. A major issue in this passage is conflicts between people. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, James will ask. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? This seems to be understood as referring to various uncontrolled, unchecked, and unholy desires of the people within this audience. Now, when James says that their passions are at war within them, both in Greek and in English, military-type language can be used symbolically. We hear it all the time in English. You watch a football game, they talk about it being a battle or a war. We hear news from Capitol Hill, how Congress will battle over a certain bill becoming law. Here, internally, people are having battles, inner tensions between worldly desires and godly pursuits. Again, this is all setting the scene. Verse 2, James ramps up in describing the situation. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, James says murder. Is he literally talking about murder, about taking life? Probably not. He seems to be speaking more metaphorically. 
And to understand why he would make that reference, it's important to understand the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about anger and he compares that to murder. Looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the way Jesus is using it, the division between people, in a sense, he compares to murder. Because wishing harm on someone, thinking ill of someone's character, not being loving towards other people. All of those are doing things which do not promote unity and life-giving relationships and fellowship. So it's not murder as an ending life, but it's tarnishing and ending relationships. And Jesus argues that this divisiveness goes against the very heart of God, so much so that he compares it to killing someone. And so... In James, there are these bad relationships and ill will among the people to whom James is writing. And he, too, compares that to murder. Now, the strained relationships within the church, that's not the disease. It's the symptom. The disease is a strained relationship with God. And the symptom are sins which impact our relationships with other people. So again, where it begins is a bad relationship with God and that outwardly results in strained relationships with others. And his point is that there are underlying issues which are the root of the problem, the actual disease. Struggles with unity, struggles in relationships with people, inner struggles and temptations to the world, putting too much stock into worldly pursuits. They're all symptoms of the disease of a strained relationship with the Lord. We see this when we are worldly, when we're looking at things, things in the perspective, like everything is about today. Everything is about this life. Everything is about what we can have or do or be, as opposed to looking at things with eternal purposes. We so often struggle to be content with God. And as a result, it can have us looking very much like the rest of the world, like everyone else, instead of being followers of Christ. In our passage, James says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Back in verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. To covet something is to have a strong desire for something that belongs to someone else. And part of the sin of covetousness is that it fails to have faith in God as the provider of what we need. Instead of trusting in the Lord, we look at what others have. In Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, Moses warns against covetousness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. 
Again, because if we look at what we don't have, we will never have enough. Covetousness is a sin that begins in the heart with what we desire. Again, the point is not that it's bad to want things, but it's bad to want things that aren't ours and that aren't meant for us. Covetousness begins in the heart, the war within. But part of the danger of covetousness is that it can lead us into other sins. A person who's in business might want to succeed so much that they begin to break the rules. Or a student who's in school wants to do well and can be tempted to cheat. It can lead to envy or to ill will for others. In any event, for James, he's saying that covetousness leads to quarreling. It is destructive to relationships. The passage says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Returning to that strong language. Well, there's no reason to do that. There's no reason to fight. There's no reason to quarrel, to be discontent. Because we have something as Christians that is far more valuable than any worldly pursuit. We have an infinitely loving God who loves us and forgives us of our sins. And the people who were hurting relationships in the church were like the bank robber causing harm and risking for something small not realizing the value of what they already had. We have Jesus, we have the gospel, and we have a great God, the wonderful things he has promised, the blessings that he gives us, the life he invites us into. We have all of that and more, and we are so often discontent and focused instead on worldly pursuits. The fact that James calls disunity murder the fact that James, Jesus says that anger with a brother is murder. It's not that that idea is too radical. It's not that they make too big of a deal of conflicts and hatred. It's that we don't take these things seriously enough. We don't have the disdain for broken relationships that we should. We laugh at dysfunction on TV like it's a big joke. But because of a strained relationship with God, we look to other sources. But this leads to covetousness, which leads to harm, of wanting our way, of disregarding what's best for others, of putting ourselves first instead of being humble and putting others ahead of ourselves. It spirals out. But God's way calls us to unity. It calls us to take our cross daily. It calls us to be a follower of Christ. That's true in relationships, that's true in families, and it's true in the church. It happens in churches all over the world, all the time. Disunity. I've mentioned this before, different examples of ridiculous reasons from conversations I've had of why people have left churches. We got new carpet last summer. People leave churches over that. People leave because they didn't get to lead a ministry that they wanted. Because their kid didn't get a certain part in a Christmas pageant, so they leave. The service is too traditional. The service is too contemporary. The pastor talks too much about the Bible. All of these are things I've heard why people have left churches. 
countless other illegitimate reasons to break fellowship. And for so many, the root when people leave the church is ultimately they wouldn't do what I wanted. I remember a former, I've been in many churches, so again, whenever I tell a story, who knows which one of them it is, but a pastor friend of mine was telling me a story about a family where the kids wanted to do music. And he told me, Josh, they were bad. They were not good, they were not musically gifted. But they did let them do music, but it still wasn't enough. And so they ended up going to a bigger church where they had nothing to do with music. We don't get our way. And so we cause disunity or leave or quit. There's the Burger King commercials. Have it your way. But that's not why the church exists. And again, I'm not saying that there's never a legitimate reason to leave a church. But I am saying that many of the reasons why people do leave churches are not good. The pastor stops preaching the gospel. That's an issue. Leave that church. Not liking choir robes or the lack of choir robes. Or the coffee or the lack of coffee or the bathroom soap or whatever else. Those are not reasons to leave. And we're in 21st century America, where there's always another church to check out. But we too often end up treating churches like restaurants. Just find the one that we like. Make them cater to us and our preferences. That is not the intent of the church. But in the first century, in these communities, there might have only been one church. So if there were disagreements, either you had to work it out... Or things are going to be pretty awkward and uncomfortable. We're called to love God and to love people. And truly having love for people, if we truly have that, then the music style isn't the most important thing. Then the fact that the pastor's shoes don't match his belt is not the most important thing. By the way, mine do match. And certainly the issues of covetousness are not just within churches. They affect all areas of life. Wanting things our way. Wanting the world to conform to our standards. It makes sense for the person who's not a Christian to struggle with covetousness. Because since you're not in Christ and you're not walking with the Lord, which means that there must be something else that you value above all things. But the godly should not be worldly. It's not just with covetousness, but that can be an important place to begin to look. What we're desiring, what we're striving for. And verse 2 concludes by saying that the people do not have because they do not ask. It's that the people are asking for the wrong things. People aren't pursuing God and desiring God. They're coveting worldly things over godly things. The worldly are worldly, but the godly should be godly. Verse 3, briefly. The reason why the people don't get what they ask for is given in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. People ask for things. It's not so that they can love God better. 
It's not so that they can serve people better. They're asking for themselves so they can have it for themselves. And the point clearly isn't that we can't enjoy anything. We can like a piece of cake or a new cell phone. But we have to keep those things in the right perspective. We have to keep them in their right place. That those are not the things that sustain the human soul. There's a godly way and a worldly way. Verse 4, James says, you adulterous people. Again, this passage talks a lot about the sinful state of humanity and the ramifications of that. This might seem out of place or appear to be confusing. He's gone from people wanting things too much to adultery. The adultery here is spiritual. They're cheating on God. If you look at the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books, the people of God are seen as being the bride of God. And the bride is supposed to be faithful to the groom, the Lord. Adultery is constantly talked about in the Old Testament in connection to people worshiping other gods, turning away from their first love. James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Clearly, friendship with God does not mean that we have no dealings with the world. We interact with people. We live in society. We go to the grocery store or the gas station. We have friends and family who are not Christians, who don't know the Lord. But we aren't called to be worldly, to be distracted. We aren't supposed to look to the things of the world as our ultimate sources of joy. We're to care about the things of the world that enable us to bring glory to God. Verse 5, I don't think I made a slide for that one. It's complicated, but it seems to get at God's will being for us to worship him and to serve him. That is what God created us for. But in turning to the world and looking at the world, our situations, our lives, we aren't doing that. And again, it can look different for different people. But there isn't grace in opposing the Lord. It's found in following God. It's not about pushing for our own way, but trusting in his ways. All of this is James continuing to describe the fallen situation. Again, it's true within the church, but it's also true for humanity. Sins, covetousness, worldliness... It's all a symptom of the disease of a strained relationship with God. That's the problem. The first half of this passage shows us the depths of sin. And the solution to the problem, no surprise, is the gospel. But what I want to focus on specifically in this second part is repentance. Repentance is a change. It's a change of heart. It's remorse from sin and turning from sin. In addressing an audience of Christians who are struggling with sin, the text, this passage, is calling us from sin to God. It calls us to repent. Maybe you've had sins that are real struggles, or maybe you're in one right now. Maybe it's something that you do, or maybe it's just something that's in your heart. 
and you know that something is wrong. Or maybe you really mess up sometimes. And you feel like you've gone down a couple of notches with God. And you don't know what to do. This second part of this section is insightful in what repentance looks like. What turning from sin and turning to God looks like. And given that James is talking about these things in the context of sin and turning to God in the context of sin, I again think it's helpful to look at this passage as a guide somewhat in how we repent. And so briefly, I'm just going to make five points, and these will be brief. First, repentance involves submission to God. Repentance isn't just about moralism. It's about an actual desire for the Lord. It's not just, well, I'll use less bad words or I'll drink less. It's not just, don't do that. But it's turning to God. It's recognizing that God is greater than your sin. That turning from sin is turning to a better way. Verse 6 into verse 7, James says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God gives grace when we come to him. We submit ourselves to God. And Romans chapter 8, verse 7 It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If what drives us is our own desires, if we're coveting things, wanting things at the cost of relationships, wanting things more than God, that is a mind that is hostile to God. A disregard for the will of God, again, is at the root of sin. We don't submit to the Lord. As the serpent said in the garden, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden. I'm sorry, as God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. But the serpent twists what God has said. They do things their own way. And in our own lives, we don't submit to God. Do you ever do something that's sinful that even before you've done it, you know that you shouldn't do it? Yes, we do it all the time. Maybe you lose your temper. Maybe you get short with someone. Maybe you find a reason to justify why you don't really have to forgive someone or love someone or to be good to someone. It's a failure to submit to God. And when I get on these points, I do think it's worth saying that When I talk about submission to God, the point isn't about some sort of grudging, joyless submission. God isn't a tyrant. We just have to get with his program or bad things are going to happen. Rather, it's recognizing that God's ways are better. That his life that he invites us into is better. It's a more joy-filled and purposeful life to live for God than to decide our own ways. Because by the logic of an all-knowing, all-perfect God, there can be nothing outside of that which brings greater joy or fulfillment. But we don't always have that outlook. Because we're focused on the world. We're focused on what's in front of us. We're focused on what we want. Oftentimes. If you struggle with anger, it can feel good to be angry. 
If you have a certain group of people who you don't feel like you really have to love or who's somehow an exception, then you can feel justified of not loving that group. So oftentimes we don't make it a joyful thing to submit to God and his truth and his will. But in submitting to God, even when you might not like something, even if your natural inclination is to disagree, to have the humility to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. To have the humility to put the will of God above your own. To have the humility to trust that God's ways are higher than our ways. So we submit to God and his will. Verse 10 of this passage says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We can't exalt ourselves before the Lord because we don't stand up before an almighty God. But we submit to God and to his will. We humble ourselves that his ways are true and good, that he is righteous, that he is our help. Repentance involves submission to God. Second point, repentance involves resisting evil. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. When James talks about resisting, resisting the devil, it is also about resisting evil, turning away from evil, not putting ourselves in vulnerable positions to sin, especially when it's a specific sin that we're turning away from. But resisting sin, it isn't about conquering sin on our own. By the nature of the gospel, we can't do that. But through Jesus, there can be victory. Third point, repentance involves drawing near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We repent by submitting to the Lord, by resisting evil, by drawing near to God. And the difference between submitting to God and drawing near to God is that in submitting to God, it's submitting to the will of God. Drawing near to God is getting at our relationship with God. So we submit to the moral perfection and righteousness of God. We resist evil and sin. We draw near. It's not that God leaves us when we sin. It's that we leave him. We take ourselves from his presence by our sin. God is easy to find. But we turn our backs on him. But we aren't always looking. We aren't always wanting to approach him. Such a wonderful promise that God makes in this passage. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Fourth, repentance involves holiness. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When James says, cleanse your hands, he's referring to the Old Testament. The, priest, the priests had to wash their hands before going into the temple. There were purification rituals because the temple represented the presence of God, and you don't arbitrarily approach a holy God. And James makes a twist on the Old Testament and really gets at the heart of of those priestly cleansing rituals. It wasn't just about washing your hands, but that washing your hands was meant to be a symbol of moral cleanliness. 
And so here James says that we are to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts as we approach God. Again, the point is not just teaching a bunch of rules. It's not about do this and don't do that. But rather, as we approach God, that requires holiness. And if you're thinking, I can't do that. You're right. You can't do that. You can't be holy on your own. But it is through the grace of Christ that we are made holy. It is Jesus who is the greater high priest who goes into the temple. It is Jesus who is the presence of God with us. It is Jesus who is morally pure and clean and allows us to stand before the Lord. It is Jesus who allows us to have access to God. And we can accept that by faith. And trust in him. And know that he is Lord. And trust in him as Savior. And any person is able to accept that gift and believe in the gospel. And that no matter how low a person is. Or how far off a person is. That they can accept and believe in the grace of Christ. But to go the step beyond that. To actually return to God. And live for God is to submit to God. That the grace of Christ is not meant to be taken so that we can just continue to do things our own way and live for ourselves. And in returning to God and in grieving our sin, it requires purity and holiness. It requires a focus on God and humility before him. The text says that we can't be double-minded. That's a word that James had used in chapter 1 of this book. That we aren't to be wavering between worldliness and godliness. But God's desire is for us to be single-minded in our focus on him. And when we're not, when we lose that focus, when we struggle with sin, that we can turn from that sin as well and repent and turn to God. Fifth point, repentance involves turning from sin. Repentance involves remorse of our sin. It's not just a matter of wanting change. It's easy to want something. It's recognizing that something is a sin against the holy God of creation and taking the step to change. But that requires remorse for our sin. It's not that we're called to live in shame, but in the process of turning away from sin, there is reason for remorse. Verse 9 James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Again, this language is similar to what we see in the prophetic books. Images of the prophets wailing, mourning, weeping over sin. Grieving the sins of God's people. Their failure to repent. Also makes me think of the Beatitudes. Where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the reason why the gospel is not just about following a list of rules, of do's and don'ts. Because in your inner being, in your heart and mind, you can't cause yourself to hate sin without actually hating it. We can control certain behaviors. You can force yourself to come to church. You can force yourself to eat broccoli, even though it's horrible. You can make yourself do certain things. 
But you can't force yourself to actually actively hate sin. It comes from looking to the holy God. And it can only come from looking to the holiness of God and to our failure to live up to that. Because if we just compare ourselves to what's around, most of us are probably pretty good, pretty nice people compared to other people. But not when we compare ourselves to a holy God. In our passage where James says, laughter to be turned to mourning and joy to gloom, the point is not that there's never a time for joy and laughter. It's that when we're in the process of repenting and, and mourning our sin, it shows a seriousness with which we take our sin and view our sin. That it's not something nonchalant and funny or quaint. Do we take our sin seriously? Or is it like a little league team losing a baseball game and just saying, oh, well, we'll just try again next time, but not really caring. Our sin matters. It matters so much that Jesus went to the cross to forgive us of our sins. And the good news is that we have a gracious God. That when we do mess up or when we do fall into sin, he is there to forgive because he is good. It's not that we deserve it. It's not that he owes us. It's because he is good, but he is also holy. And truly walking with God, and in that life, there is growth. So, five steps to repentance. Repentance involves submission to God. Repentance involves resisting evil. Repentance involves drawing near to God. Repentance involves holiness. Repentance involves remorse for sin. Do you have an area of sin in your life today where you know you're not living up to God's standards and what God would have for you? Something that you know you shouldn't be doing. Don't play games. Repent. Turn to God. Again, He is abounding in steadfast love. He is merciful and gracious. I'll close with this. In Edmonton, there was a baby girl named Erica Nordberry. She was known as the Miracle Baby. In February of 2001, the one-year-old Nordberry wandered out of a friend's house into the Canadian night. She was not found until the next morning. She had stayed out in 24-degree temperatures all night long. When she was taken to the hospital, her body temperature was 61 degrees, compared to a normal body temperature of 98.6 degrees. She was pronounced clinically dead. She hadn't had a pulse for over two hours. After she had been placed on a warming blanket, they were able to get this baby breathing again. When she was released from the hospital six weeks later, aside from some scars and an injury on her left foot, she was otherwise perfectly healthy. That's a true story. That's a helpful illustration. When we wander away from God, our hearts grow cold. Apart from him, we cannot survive, but he is there to bring restoration and healing when we go to him. That's the good news. We are sinful. We cannot be good enough on our own. We cannot do enough good on our own. There is no way for us to make things right. 
But as Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved so that we could have eternal life through him. We cannot do that on our own. But the good news is that there is grace when we trust in Jesus. There is forgiveness when we believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. There is life when we know that he gives the promise of eternal life with him in heaven. Do you believe that? Jesus calls us to believe in him and to trust in him. That's the good news. That is our hope. That is the one way to life with God, to his glory. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you that you did make a way for people who, in any number of ways, fall short. Lord, but in spite of that, that you love us. Lord, we thank you for your son, for the perfect life that he lived, the sinless life that he lived. Lord, and the eternal life that he lives because he has risen. And again, we rejoice in that, and may we come to you and turn to you and believe in you. Lord, may we walk in your ways and live as your people and live for you to bring you glory and live in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.